This is Aliens and Artists, the third in our triptych of talks with Kirsten Blackburn. I'm Stuart Davis. Kirsten is an artist, co-founder of the Experiencer Group, and an experiencer herself. If you missed part two because you are not a patron, self-flagellation is the appropriate redress. In this episode, what is up with the color indigo? We ponder past lives as Celtic druids. It takes one to know one. Also, unexplained pregnancies. Using psychokinetic capacities to find treasure. What is the value of art to hubrids or hybrids? What would they pay for a Gerhard Richter? I have a Richter for sale. I mean, I have Gerhard Richter and he's for sale. Plus as well, in addition to, I get rabbit holed by a fucking Foo Fighter poster. I just, I can't even. But first I asked Kirsten about Stephen Greer's view that there are no negative abductions conducted by ET beings. I wholeheartedly disagree with him. Absolutely. Because I have spoken, you, you and I have spoken and heard, to, heard enough experiencers who have had very difficult and traumatic experiences with ET and physical ailments as a result that are much more acute than mine, much more. I feel very, very strongly for those people. I empathize with those people. And I don't believe that it's just the government. I don't think that's possible. I feel like we, I think I said this before to you when we spoke before, and that is, is that there's got to be many hundreds of thousands of different species of ET that have come by here to visit and who have some kind of interest in us. I personally feel I'm protected and I have some kind of nice folks around me, my guides, um, my people, my ancestors. I feel extraordinarily lucky, but I'm not the only story. There's multitudes of stories. And to just say that there's, I mean, he's basically painting a picture that there's one form of ET out there. Like that's to me wildly arrogant. There's not one form of human being. I mean, we're like different sorts of antelope. When you compare, you know, you line up a bunch of human beings, we look like we come from different herds, you know, physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. So it's a, and it, it's a very limiting perspective. I concur. And we remain open to the possibility that Greer will surprise us. People change. When and why they change is a mystery. I do, though, Kirsten, think it's time we delve into Egypt, past life memory. What emerged in that zone in your session with Kay Randall May? Yes. Okay. So, yes, I definitely, I was kind of hoping that she would, because, you know, you and I both have this connection to Egypt. And I always have, ever since I was tiny. Ever since I was tiny, I was enthralled. I went to the De Young Museum when I was a kid in the 70s and saw King Tut's treasure. And uh, this was a magical wash of joy when I was there. And 
She said, yes, I've had many, many past lives. She kind of threw it out like, yeah, well, we all have, you know, of course, of course. And the first thing she said is she said, you have been a Druid and a Celtic Druid. And so has Stuart. And you got to be at Stonehenge during the day, the heyday of Stonehenge. And that resonated with me because I was like, well, that's another obsession with, I mean, that's my family lineage from the UK. And I'm one of those, I'm a geek for Celtic music. Like the, the more new age, the Celtic, <laughs> I will dance around like, you know, a river dancer around the house. <laughs> Um, but then when she came to Egypt, she said, you definitely, you know, you definitely have been there in the priest and priestess type of role more than one lifetime. And so has Stuart. And that was it. I was like, but were Stuart and I like best friends? Like, you know, were we hanging out together? You know, but she was not forthcoming. Nope. She didn't summarize with a simple you were good. Stuart was bad. No, nothing like that. Unfortunately. It's so intriguing. It moves me. I can see why multiple sessions with her would be fitting toward this discernment around gifted readers and not so gifted readers. Your life story is richly figured with mediums, psychics, sensitives, your time in the Theosophical Society, you've been steeped in these realms all the way back. Why is it clear to you when someone like Kay Randall May is gifted versus a more middling session with an unremarkable guide, let's say? Can you paint us a picture in that sense? Yeah. Yeah. So let me just think for a second. Well, one of the things right off the bat was that I had another reading with my very dear friend, Debray Firehawk, who is an incredible, she's a clairvoyant. She does past life readings. She's just an amazing force of nature. The very first reading she did with me 17, 18 years ago was very close to what Kay was saying. She said, you know, you are not from here. You are, there is a, a star energy in you that is built into you and you have different parents and you don't really have to do anything to just exist in that kind of energy. So when Kate brought this up, it was very, it was that the wording was very, very close to what Debray had said, honestly, 17 years ago. Now, the other thing is, is that she, she came in to my physical body. She's, you know, it's really interesting that she does that because she goes right to the physical body and she got, she pinpointed, like I said, exactly where my tensions and my pain have been bothering me the most in the most recent days, including my adrenals, which, you know, she doesn't know anything about me. Of course, she could have done a bunch of research, but I just don't think she's the kind of person who does that. You know, I guess the other thing too, is that I feel like psychics don't have to be right about everything. And sometimes they, 
what they do is they're kind of stating things that you are already doing. They're like, you should do this and you should do that. And you should consider doing laughter yoga, or you should consider doing more artwork, um, tactical artwork with your hands to ground yourself. This is something she told me. And I'm an artist, as you know. She suggested I do more sculpting um, kind of work. And that's something I've been kind of, you know, attracted to uh, with, I love working with materials, but the fact that she said you need to be doing more artwork to ground yourself is something I have been thinking about for the last six or seven days. There was also stuff that she recommended for the experiencer group, which is stuff that, I mean, down to the details of like our, our, you know, behind the scenes of the website, like, you know, you should consider doing this and consider doing that and consider that. I was like, well, that's exactly what we're doing right at this moment, which kind of makes me impatient a little bit because, you know, we're human beings and we want to hear about the future and we want a bunch of fancy responses instead of just basically saying, you know, you should do this when we're already doing it. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm doing that. Anyway, let's move on to the good stuff. But at the same time, that after all this time affirms that that person is tuned in to you. So they are actually in the present moment with you. The other thing too, is that I have a very somatic body response to people that I feel are all ego and all narcissism and all megalomania. You know, I get kind of a, a feeling in my gut that's like, oh, this is, this is not, this is too good to be true. This person has too many answers, too many, you know, like answers for everything. That makes me a little, that makes me crazy. If someone is like, well, I'm not really sure, or I don't know. I'm like, okay, tell me more, you know, let's talk some more. But if they're like, well, this is the way it is. And this is the way these beings are. And they're, you know, the reptilians are this and the, you know, the grays are that. And, you know, there's only this kind of, you know, experience you're going to have with a reptilian. They're bad news, you know. But if they're kind of like, well, you know, there's, some are good and some are bad. I, it's those middle grounds. It's that, it's that those subtle nuances that I go, okay, I'm going to continue to listen. Yeah, because I've had experiences with both kinds of, both kinds of readers. Love all that. In my session with Kay, some of the specificity was flabbergasting. She started with there is something wrong with the first molar on the upper left jaw, but it's not a cavity. Is there something wrong with that tooth? Well, a few years ago, I had broken that first molar on the top left side of my jaw and it broke apart. A third of the tooth just fell out of my mouth one day. It's never bothered me, so I never had it fixed, and not even my dentist knows about that. (laughs) (laughs) The probabilities here are absurd. No one knows that. Not my wife, not my dentist, no one. So she also identified that my right collarbone is malformed, and I broke my right collarbone as a kid. We didn't realize it had been broken until it had already grown back misshapen. So Kay got those two things right out of the gate. And frankly, it kind of stops one in one's tracks. (sighs) But also in my session, I wanted information about a green billowing plasma-like cylindrical shaped UFO my wife and I had witnessed. 
very, very close sighting, 15 or so feet from our faces. And I really wanted information on that. And Kay came back with, I'm sorry, I can't get any information on that. Was there anything in your session in which any meaningful information was simply occluded? Yes. Well, two things, and I don't want to get too graphic, but we talked about the pelvic inflammatory disease. And she basically indicated to me without getting into details that, no, this was not caused by any kind of abduction, hybridization scenario. She said, I read people who who believe that, you know, they, they've been through this and with you, I get no, 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 no. This is not you. This was just a earthly issue. This was a problem that happened in this quote unquote reality. Now that doesn't really answer your question, but for me, I guess I'm kind of flipping this a little bit in that, you know, when people are trying to tell you what it is you want to hear based on, like you could look at my life and you can go, okay, abduction, graze, hybridization program, you know, grandfather worked for Lockheed Martin, you know, grew up in the 70s in California, uh, got pelvic inflammatory disease and had a lot of reproductive issues and then got chronic fatigue later. Okay, that's a narrative that someone could easily, with a little bit of research into UFOs, go, yeah, you, you know, you were surrounded by grays and, and they took your, they made you make babies. But she didn't do that. So although she didn't say, I don't know, she was very specific about what she felt caused my pelvic inflammatory disease. But she didn't try to give me what I was looking for. And I really dig that. So that's kind of my weird, twisted way of answering your question, I guess. There was no moment where she said, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) But she did say, like, I... I mentioned an experience that I had when I was a kid and we were traveling. And uh, I think we talked about this in the last episode. And that is that, you know, we were in the RV and the dog was, you know, agitated. And all night, my mother and I dreamt that people were trying to get in. And I was like, oh, God, this sounds like a classic, you know, ET trying to get in the RV scenario. Well, she was like, no, that area was haunted. That was a haunted area, probably. I think that was just spirits that didn't want you there and you just had to hightail it out of there. And that that was another moment where I was like, okay, cool. You know, that's that makes just as much sense as the abduction scenario would make to me. And I don't have to do a deep dive into that Luckily, I feel lucky about this too. I don't have to do some hypnotic regression to try to figure out who those beings were and what what the hell happened after that, right? You're getting a string of jackpots here that's going to get you kicked out of the casino. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I know. I know. When you you sent me that text and you said, it sounds like you, you know, you've got a, a, a cannon full of confetti. I was like, yeah, confetti and sprinkles and glitter and little pieces of candy. Like, I feel so blessed right now. So blessed. I'd like to underline a detail you noted about your session that 
was in my session as well. Not only did she not just tell me what I wanted to hear, she actually told me exactly what I did not want to hear. I'm not going to go into that on your episodes, maybe some other time, but suffice to say the idea she was spooning me some gratifying narrative conforming to my preferences is laughable. I got just what I did not want in the big picture. Kay will be coming on the show. That And she would love to hear from you. She's really looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. How do you feel like this reading colors or informs the next phase of your life, the next four, five, six months? Yeah, well, you know, I'm really, I'm really excited. I'm excited for these things to, to come out more, for experiencers to be understood and to have a voice. I really feel, I feel like this is a really big change in the world. If, if everything goes the way I envision it, and I'm extraordinarily optimistic, like ad nauseum <laughs> optimistic, but I feel like there are so many people who've had experiences, who've had contact, who've had painful abductions and at the same time, glorious abductions. There are women out there who've had unexplained pregnancies when they haven't even had sex and they were not able to talk about that. And these people might have even been Christians or, you know, this could have indicated immaculate conception, all that stuff, but it, it, they weren't given the respect that they were, that they deserved because that's very traumatic. And we have an opportunity now, just like we did with civil rights movement, just like we did with the the gay rights movement movement and recognizing, you know, homosexuals as, you know, our brothers and sisters and they're normal. They're not mentally ill. There's not a screw loose. I feel like we're just about to cross into a new time where experiencers are in that category as well. Like it might get harder before it gets better, but there are people who have never spoken of this stuff because their families would just just shun them. You know, they would be abused, they would be ridiculed, made to feel crazy. We 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 know all this. So going forward after this reading, I feel like whatever my little role is in this, I'm gonna play that role because I'm, I feel for the first time in my life that, that I'm in the, I'm doing the right thing. And it's not just because I feel, you know, that there's could be this mission and this contract. It's like, it all feels correct and it feels right. And it feels that whatever little thing I can do to help other people, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And I'm not afraid for the first time of, you know, compromising my health in order to do that because I actually feel better. We talked about this before. I feel better physically now that I'm on this path and that I'm working with you and Jay and all of our amazing members, courageous, smart, brilliant, 
creative, artistic members. And then we get, we have, there's so many more we get to meet in the future. I'm excited to go out in the world and go to conferences. I freaking love conferences. That's another guilty pleasure of mine. I love UFO conferences. <laughs> so I'm going to go to, you know, this was something Kay said. She, she highly encouraged me to go to the International UFO Congress in, in Arizona. And I want to go to a bunch of these things. I love meeting these people. So that's how I feel going forward. I'm really inspired, really jazzed and juiced to just keep doing what we're doing, you know? Lucky for us, we're so fortunate to have you. Let's talk about the issues that are unique to women. For instance, what do you hear and feel in women's groups that is different from open groups? Let me just give that a moment and think, because as you know, you know, we, we don't ever want to compromise confidentiality in our groups. And the women's group is so courageous, these women. We are not afraid of talking about these reproductive issues. I think I can speak for a lot of women by saying one of the most frightening things is having health problems with your reproductive organs. It's super duper frightening. And there's a level of shame involved in that. Like you have done something wrong or you didn't take care of yourself. Like it's like this, it's almost like these, our reproductive organs are like these animals or these creatures that we're supposed to, to protect and like, you know, nurture and like treat like royalty and you know shit goes wrong and shit goes wrong when you're being tampered with and when women experiencers talk about having been somehow coerced into sex with other beings or having their eggs pulled out or having needles stuck into their belly buttons which is you know, I know that's a procedure that humans do as well. I can't remember what it's called, but these are nightmarish scenarios, especially when you can't move. And that's a common thing in abduction stories is that you are rendered completely motionless and paralyzed. But the pain is not necessarily gone with that paralyzation, uh, if that's a word. And it's almost like you have to ask the be the beings to make the pain go away. I've heard this over and over and over again. And sometimes once you do, they do something to help the pain go away. I've heard that some beings will put their hands on either side of a woman's head or a man's head for that matter, because this isn't just for women. I mean, there are men who've been through equally traumatic issues. But when, when women report that they've had these sexual encounters that they weren't that weren't consensual and that they were manipulated into behaving in ways they they didn't want to behave a lot of women experiencers talk about i think uh, Nayara Isley is one who talks about going through before she knew she was an abductee that she went through a period of being extremely promiscuous which is a confusing there's so many confusing aspects to this that we just don't can't even begin to understand. 
So to be in a, an experience, a group of women who are willing, it takes some time, but they're willing to go into these deep issues. My God, it's, it's talk about humbling. It's quite extraordinary. And like I said, there's always this level of like shame. Like I didn't take care of myself, you know, or I let something happen to me, which is also an issue with rape in, in our society. Like I let it happen. She let it happen. Her skirt was too short. Uh, she was being flirtatious. She got drunk, et cetera, et cetera. So I think a similar thing comes up for women experiencers where they're like, how did I let this happen? How did this happen to me as a child? And somehow I couldn't prevent it. Or mothers who know that their daughters are going through what they went through and they're not able to protect their daughters. This is all stuff that we're just beginning to scratch the surface on. And I really hope that we can continue to do this work and do it carefully and respectfully for these women because they are lions. I'm, I'm in awe of them. Couldn't agree more. We know of such cases personally. Also in the seeding, if recollection serves, there's an experiencer, a lesbian woman who becomes pregnant. I believe it derailed her relationship. Her partner, assuming she had had sex with a man and she had never had sex with a man, but did become pregnant. The fetus was taken. Yeah, virgins become pregnant. What sensitive person wants to go public with any of that? It is rape, braided with the anomalous. Experiencers in those scenarios are doubly vexed. The bravery and resolve these people evince in sharing even a sliver of what they've lived through is astonishing. Let's circle back to PK gifts and other perhaps latent side capacities which feature in your life. Do you feel inspired to cultivate those or allocate special attention there? Yes, I do, Stuart. I don't know how yet, and I don't know to what purpose. I always kind of suspected, because she said I was highly telepathic, and I always kind of suspected that was the case because I, like, I, I've always been kind of embarrassed that I knew too easily what other people were thinking. And I felt like I could be more invasive. And I, I just shy away from that a lot. But I also always assumed that everybody was like that. So I will, if, you know, when I was a kid and a young adult, I mean, I turned this stuff off for a long time. I wanted nothing to do with it. It, it, it wasn't that it creeped me out. It's just that I was interested in other things. So but when I was young, I honestly thought that other people could hear my thoughts just as easily as I could hear theirs. So I would just kind of try to have the best thoughts I could have, you know, and not think ill of them because I don't want to hurt their feelings. And even if I do feel ill around them, I don't want them, I don't want to think about that while I'm in the room with them. Now, I, I'd love to understand that better because it's a fascinating thing to realize that a lot of other people don't have those sensitivities. They can't walk into a room and feel the mood as heavily as I can or as lightly as I can. I mean, I can 
I can sense so many things going on in a space with people in the room that it's literally exhausting. I'd love to figure out a way that it wasn't exhausting. And that that's the first thing I want to develop. When it comes to the PK, that actually explains a ton for me because I always used to think it was my father. When we would talk on the phone, my father would, <laughs> I would start to talk about myself and the phone would go dead. My dad would say, so what's, so what's going on with you? And I feel myself, my words speeding up you know, my emotions rising and not in a bad way necessarily, just trying to give him a report. I'm very close to my dad and the phone would cut off. And I was like, oh, that's my dad. My dad's shutting the phone off because he doesn't really care what I'm talking about. I think I'm the one who was doing my emotions now. The other thing is, is that I have this ability to find treasure. I've always been this way. And I can find things that are in a thrift store for a dollar that are actually worth like $2,500. I've found things on the side of the road that I ended up selling at Christie's. I just have this ability to find extraordinarily valuable things in odd places. And I think that is something to do with my PK as well. It's almost like this twisted, weird psychometry that I've always been able to practice. I can manifest stuff, just physical stuff. It comes my way and I usually don't have to spend a lot of money on it. Find things in the ground, literally. So I think that has to do with my PK. I'd love to know more about that. And I'd love to talk to other people who kind of get it and understand it. The intuition stuff as well. I I'd love to develop my intuition better. What a great, it just sounds like a great bunch of projects to start working on. Pretty exciting. It is indeed. I have a hint of PK envy. Yeah. (laughs) Part of me wonders what will happen at our upcoming experiencer group retreat. Is this the anomalous equivalent of the Large Hadron Collider at CERN? Make some predictions for me what will happen when we're all together in person. Oh my God. I just like, we're all going to be crossing the stream, you know, to make a Ghostbusters reference. Like, yeah, I just had this vision of us all kind of turning into like light beings. No, it's, you know, it's going to be fascinating. It's going to be really, really interesting. I'm not, I don't have any delusions that it's going to be all great and fabulous and blissful. I mean, you get, human beings together in a room and shit goes wrong, drama happens, things, the unexpected takes place. Experiencers, I think when they're together in person, I mean, we've only done this on Zoom. We haven't put this to the test in person yet because of COVID. One of the things that Kay brought up and other other people such as Kathleen Martin and Yvonne Smith, I believe, have also brought this up is that when you have experiencers in the room together, there can be some meltdowns. And that's completely understandable and overwhelming. And I feel like we, that could happen and people need, are going to need a lot of care. 
you never know what us humans can bring out in each other. And it might not necessarily be pretty. I don't think it's going to be ugly or violent or anything like that. I think it just could be somewhat painful. And hopefully we can help each other get through that pain or at least comfort each other. I also think we're going to just like, there's going to be a lot of hugging because <laughs> we, none of us has been able to hug anybody. And now we've gotten to know each other online and we've talked about things that have been so personal and so deep and so amazing, difficult. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, Stuart. <laughs> I'm look really looking forward to it though. Really. And I think we're going to have to fortify ourselves and eat well and hydrate and, you know, rest and take naps. And, and I think all that stuff is going to be really important. Of course, there have been innumerable conferences, retreats, support groups before, but I feel like this retreat is a unique iteration. So we'll see. Kirsten, let's talk about using artwork to ground yourself as prescribed by Kay. Your life as an artist has included many modalities. Tell me about how art factors in the puzzles we've been discussing. For instance, being a starseed, a creator who's helping modulate the human-non-human dynamic. Sometimes I feel artists are the rainforests turning spiritual carbon into oxygen on the inner landscape. What does art mean to you in that sense? And if you feel inclined to comment, what might art mean to them, the non-human entities? Mm-hmm. That's so, I, I love thinking about that. Like, what does it mean to them? And, and who are the ones that are the most artistic and the most creative and the most in touch with that intense creativity? And who are the ones that have no fucking idea what art even is? And are they interested in us partly because of that? Because human beings can kind of do miracles with art. I mean, look at Cirque du Soleil and these contortionists and physical dancers who defy gravity. Like human beings have been doing that for centuries. And like, what other animal does that? No other animals, not that I know of anyway, but we do it for fun and we do it to entertain each other. And then I feel deeply that human beings are fundamentally creative. And our creativity is, everyone has their creative milieu or their, the thing that makes them get the best in touch with themselves, whether it's numbers and, or building or creating groups with other people, companies, things like that, or simply doing art for the sake of art. Now I followed the artist way, like a lot of us did in the nineties. I started the book and I got about a third of the way through and I didn't finish it, but I, there were two things I took away from it. And one was the morning papers, which is, you, you know, you sit down and you write three pages every morning without stopping. And I haven't done that for years, but that is something that I think when I was doing that really opened me up. And Kay actually told me she felt I, I really needed to write. Now, the writing is separate 
from my art because she felt my art was all about grounding myself. And I kind of felt relieved because as an artist, I always felt like, oh, I have to promote myself. I have to sell my art. I have to find the thing that everybody wants. Well, now I don't feel like that's, I don't have to do that anymore. Like if someone wants my art, I'll do it for them. And some of my best artwork has been done as, a, as gifts for other people. But I feel like as humans, art and creativity is honestly one of the, the best things going for us. I mean, we do incredible things with our hands, with our minds, um, with materials. And for me, materials of the earth turned into art is one of the most beautiful and satisfying things ever. Whether you're using clay or you're using, um, you know, paint made out of lapis lazuli or you're taking a natural substance. We have an artist on the Experiencer Group who used chalk from, I think, the Seven Sisters in England to finish off one of her paintings. And to me, that is absolutely magical. She created this painting and then finished it with this natural substance. I want to do more of that myself. Uh, did I answer the question? I should say so. Space sis. <laughs> 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 I would like to follow up on what it means to them, the non-humans. The non-humans who can truly apprehend how constitutionally innate creativity is to the human being. And the others who haven't a fucking clue. <laughs> Do you want to name names on this matter? <laughs> Does it start with a G? <laughs> well, humans, non-humans, drop anchor wherever so inclined. Well, I think that people get their creativity really confused, human beings. They confuse their creativity with greed, you know? So, you know, we can't just pull some metal out of the ground. We have to pull all the metal out of the ground. Like, to me, that's just greedy, right? But that comes from a creative impulse, right? So, but we're, we're we, you know, we just don't have any control of ourselves. We're greedy. We're gluttonous. We take everything that we can take. We, we, so, okay, I do think that there are human beings who don't get art. There are definitely human, human beings who don't get art, but I do think that they have some level, they, there's something creative in them somewhere. As far as the beings are concerned, and I hope I'm, I'm getting the question right, but as far as the beings are concerned, I've heard some really charming kind of creepy stories about gray aliens looking at objects and going, what the hell is this, you know? And David Jacobs talks about, you know, the hubrids and the hubrids not understanding our aesthetic. Like what, you know, if, if it's a hybridized human being who's part alien and potentially part gray alien, they're like totally confused by how we would arrange our living room aesthetically. And, and what's the point of making sure the living room furniture is in the living room and the bedroom furniture is in the bedroom? And to a human, it's like, well, duh. I mean, it's aesthetically pleasing or it's comfortable. So I guess I'm kind of naming names there. 
the grays seem to be, I don't, I don't know about all of them, but they seem to be super disconnected. And we don't even know if they are, you know, they could be, you know, biological androids themselves. We don't know. But it seems like some of them are kind of curious about like, what the hell is this thing you're keeping on your wall just for the sake of having it on your wall? I don't get it. You know, they must, clothing must be really bizarre. I did this cartoon once of a, of a tall sort of gray alien wearing a pair of Y-front underpants. And it, the saying after I drew it, I was like, well, okay, I don't know where this came from. But the saying that I wrote was he put them on to see why they were deemed so important. And I think that that's what some beings wonder about us. Like, what the hell is all this adornment about? You know, why underwear? Like, why, why didn't they do just put the pants on or not wear any pants at all? Why the pants? And why the pants under the pants? This is such a fascinating, fascinating, fuck, fa- fascinating. Fascinating. Oh my God, what a Freudian slip. Fascinating. Okay. Love your reflections on this. Hubrids, disoriented, unable to make heads or tails of basic aesthetics, clueless grays, nonplussed by the meaning of common objects. But my mind goes to the mantid entity I've had contact with who was adorned in a beguiling indigo robe with a high collar. Quite the sartorial specificity, conscientiously selected. I'm still parsing the implications of that garment, seems to be a hard swing to the other end of the spectrum we're exploring here on art and non-human beings. I'm not saying manted aesthetics are synonymous with ours, but on occasion their adornment choices seem laden with meaning or purpose. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, you and I have talked about this a couple of times. And I have this funny little theory that might not even hold any water that somehow those cloaks, that, that high collar was to protect you. And I could be totally wrong, but there might be something about those beings. And I'm fascinated by mantid beings. I, and anything to do with them. I just, I'm just fascinated and enthralled. I feel like they have a lot of power and that sometimes they just have to cover it up. But the fact that it was that color, and this is something that you and I, you know, want to talk about, and that is that that color comes up in my meditations and I, I believe in your meditation. And it, to me, it's, a divine color and perhaps there's something that is energetically actually powerful about that color. When I was studying therapeutic touch back in the day with Dora Koontz and Dolores Krieger at Indralea, the Theosophical Camp, they spoke very clearly about a certain color to be used for the highest healing. So if someone was had a, an acute problem, you invoke this, inc- this deep blue 
And they said, it's the color of the Ajax can. That was it. That was like, they said, okay, think about the Ajax can of cleanser. And there's this, and it's kind of sparkly, right? At least the old ones were back in the day. They may have changed it. And they're like, that's the blue. And to me, that's that purpley indigo kind of luminescent color that I don't know. I, I hope that I'm, I'm understanding that's the color of the cloak that your mantis was wearing. Yeah, a deep indigo that had some subtleties that are hard to convey. I so feel you on the purpose of some garments being to signal meaning, but also to protect the experiencer, to shield or veil the recipient from that which might render us undone. Kripal has addressed this, came up in our dialogue with Kimberly Lafferty, uh, with Veil Road, Chris Kingston. The simple presence and proximity of some non-human beings can be lethal or debilitating to humans if not governed. And you and I are going to do a follow-up segment on indigo, the history of indigo, why that is interesting, and how it may feature in the cosmic lexicon of some non-human entities. So, Kirsten, hybrids or hubrids, I want to ask you about how they have or have not advanced. Many experiencers report progress being made in the morphology and countenance of hybrid beings. Purportedly, there are many among us, and they move in the general populace undetected because of enhancements over generations. But it seems while their appearance is upgraded, the same can't be said for their interiority, their subjectivity, their affect, social and emotional intelligence. They're oblivious to simple social cues. Do you have feelings on this imparity regarding their inner and outer changes? Yeah, and that's a great question. I mean, we know they can't drive, right? They still, they still can't drive. Like, I, I mean, this is a, a story for another day, but my, my sweetheart, he had a, what he strongly believes was a car accident with a, with a, a hubrid being years ago. And it's kind of well known. And I've, I've talked about this with Richard Dolan after he's interviewed David Jacobs and commiserating about the fact that they, they don't understand fashion and they don't know how to drive. And they can't really, like you said, pick up social cues. So it makes me think that there's sort of a weird little trade-off here and perhaps kind of a, a problem in like, okay, so my optimistic self says the reason this is happening is because we basically fucked up the earth, right? We fucked up the earth. We're violent to each other and to other beings. And we need some curbing, right? These beings are helping us out in the long run because we're screwing things up. It's not that they're like trying to take over the earth. It's just that they have some kind of responsibility to make sure that we're, you know, we become better because we we're really screwing up. Okay, that's the optimistic me. The pessimistic, cynical me is like, well, they're really kind of, you know, they do things without consent. They they don't seem to get us, especially like in David Jacobs's writing, they don't seem to understand food and our 
enjoyment of food. There's so many things they don't seem to get that there seems to be some big flaw in the system. Like if this is really a big program of like repopulating the earth with their species, it's going to be a pretty boring, unmagical species if they continue in the way that David Jacobs writes about. Like there's flaws, there's mistakes that keep happening. And sure, if they can pass aesthetically or you can, you can cross paths with them on the street and you'd never know. I mean, I kind of feel like that's been going on a lot longer than just the last few decades. I, I, I kind of have this men in black feeling that the movie, I mean, that there's a lot of extraterrestrials just kind of hanging out here, walking around, and they've kind of made this their home. And a lot of them don't really want to mix with us because we are a problem. Like if we see a spider, nine out of 10 people are going to step on that spider and kill it. What are we going to do if we see an ET being in our living room who just came over for a visit and they look to us like a spider or like some kind of ugly, horrifying thing? We're going to react. We're very reactionary. So you know, that's, I, I honestly don't know. I don't, there's a lot of questions around this hybrid hybrid scenario to me. I, I almost feel like it's been blown a little bit out of proportion. Like maybe it's a little more subtle than we think, but I, I keep going back to the fact that they need to learn how to drive better and they need to learn more about fashion because what they wear reportedly just bad. There's totally something to that. If they're taking over the world, some quarters of the invading force are riddled with ineptitude. They need like a pers- like a subscription to Vogue magazine and Cosmopolitan like on the ship. They need cosmic queer eye for the straight guy. Mantis <laughs> <laughs> with these cloaks, like the high collar, I have to say, there's something to me that high collar like it rings of like Elvis or like vampires or something. Medici Queens, David Bowie. David Bowie. Like that seems like a fashion choice to me. Another fold in this garment is that while the mantids appear to be toward the top of the holarchy of these beings, why can't the beings in charge who have the best fashion sense implement a dress code? <laughs> Maybe they're just such divas that they're like, oh no, you don't get to have what I have. Like, I'm going to shine and you are not going to shine today, my viewers friend. You don't get the cloak. Sorry. Touche. I mean, if everyone is wearing indigo robes in the great room of the mothership, it loses its distinction. (laughs) Right? Exactly. Yeah. For more information on Kirsten Blackburn, get to know her meet with her take the time to walk and talk and listen who is she become a patron and get vip access to the finest funerals the best burials the creamiest cremations (laughs) we here at aliens and artists lost someone very to us this recently brenda tent And who better to read Brenda Tent's obituary than Kirsten Blackburn, who did not know Brenda while alive, but endeavors not to after her passing. 
Brenda Trent retired from living at the age of old, surrounded by family and natural causes. A librarian from birth, Brenda was an avid collector of dust. She had a sweetheart and married her high school. She loved having hobbies and helping her sons be disadvantaged youths. She had no horses but thought she did. The church gave her a choir because she sang like a bird and looked like a bird, and Brenda was a bird. She owed us so many poems. The funeral will be held in 1977 at Heaven. In lieu of flowers, send Brenda more life. Brenda was a patron and a plus member, and as such will be cryogenically frozen until the singularity when she will be reanimated alongside Ray Kurzweil and Walt Disney to repopulate Earth and then re-depopulate Earth. Maybe you'll mate with Brenda or be one of her offspring in the pageant of post-apocalyptic polygamy that awaits patrons and plusers. It is a cult. That's true. But you are its leaders. Click the link in the show notes and get all the so many double plus good plentiful bounties. Can we talk about the new Foo Fighters poster promoting their September 15th show in Syracuse, New York? It's by the New York artist 1000 Styles, who we link to in the show notes. The poster features multiple UFOs scanning the landscape with light beams and a giant mantis entity on the ground wearing a space helmet. Its limbs are entangled in power lines and stoplights. Vehicles are stacked high nearby. It's also strapping laser pistols. (laughs) The art was brought to our attention by Justin Farrar on Twitter. Thank you, Justin. Justin did some research and tweeted that, quote, the flying saucers and power lines in the poster are a reference to the blackout of 1965, during which people across the Northeast, especially Syracuse and central New York, reported seeing UFOs, end quote. Justin also mentioned that the artist used the mantis entity just out of preference. Interesting choice. I agree, Justin. It doesn't take much digging to find coverage of this major event on November 9th, 1965, where 30 million people lost power on the East Coast all the way into Canada. I know, Canada had power in 1965? Anyway, this was the height of the Cold War, not long after the Cuban Missile Crisis, and many feared the worst, that the Soviets had launched a nuclear attack. When it became apparent that was not the issue, a potentially stranger cause arose. In Syracuse, and in fact all over the Northeast, UFOs were reported. Writing for the Syracuse New Times, researcher Cheryl Costa details a number of events that suggest a massive power failure may have had links to widespread anomalous phenomena, including this list of events, which all occurred on November 9, 1965. Quoting now at length from Cheryl's article, we also link to it in the show notes. November 9, 1965, 5 p.m., Middletown, New York, a resident reports seeing a ball of light, a green light in the sky. 5 p.m., Jersey City, New Jersey, a resident reports seeing a bright object moving from north to south over Manhattan then over lower Manhattan. The object shoots straight up 
at an extreme velocity. 5 p.m., a resident of Newton, Massachusetts reports a bright fireball traveling east to west. 5 p.m., an orchestra conductor on a flight between Syracuse and Rochester observes a bright light descending towards central New York. 5 p.m., Camillus, New York. A housewife reports a huge dome-shaped object over a local sub-power station about five minutes before the massive blackout. 5 p.m., Cicero, New York. A local pilot in a small plane reports seeing a huge bright light hover near the high-tension wires crossing the Mohawk River. 5 p.m., personnel from the Sir Adam Beck Hydroelectric Power Plant in Ontario, Canada, report four strange lights over the power plant. 5 p.m., Niagara Falls Power Station employees report seeing a huge glowing object hovering over the power station. So the Foo Fighters poster does have ties to a series of fascinating sightings up and down the East Coast. Perhaps most telling, a NICAP report states that in addition to the loss of power, the blackout triggered a red alert for the facility which was to house the President of the United States in the event of a nuclear attack. That facility was known as Mount Weather. Now we're in Robert Hastings territory. The NICAP report goes further, saying that there had also been UFO sightings six weeks earlier, and then points out what is definitely my favorite event in this constellation of consternation. This is where the story becomes aliens and artists gold, and I get rabbit-holed, which is a verb now. You're welcome. I submit for your consideration the purported account of actor Stuart Whitman. Beyond having such a beautiful first name, Whitman was an Oscar-nominated actor. He was in countless TV and film projects. His obituary in the New York Times was as long as your arm. No, your other arm. Stuart Whitman is said to have recounted the following to Vernon Scott, a United Press International Hollywood correspondent and columnist for 52 years. On November 9, 1965, Stuart Whitman was stuck alone in a room on the 12th floor of a Manhattan hotel. He was awakened just before sunset, a detail I love, by a whistling noise from outside the hotel. He rose and witnessed two UFOs and later recounted, quote, one of them was orange and the other was blue. They gave off a strange luminescent light, so I couldn't see if there were portholes or who was in them. Then, I heard them speaking to me as if they were on a loudspeaker. They spoke to me in English. It may not have been audible to anyone else. I was probably tuned to the right wavelength. They said they wanted to talk to me because I appeared to have no malice or hate in my soul. They said they were fearful for Earth because Earthlings were messing around with unknown quantities and might disrupt the balance of the universe on their planet. They said the blackout was just a little demonstration of their power and that they could do a lot more with almost no effort. It served as a warning. They said they could stop our whole planet from functioning. They asked me to do what I could to fight malice, prejudice, and hate on Earth, and then they took off. I felt elated. 
I wasn't even shocked. I was standing by the window and awake the entire time. I don't know why they picked me as a contact, but I'll swear off a Bible that I saw them out there and that they talked to me. End quote. It gets better. Researcher Bill Nell indicated in multiple published works that actor Warren Beatty was also staying in that very same hotel on that very same day, call me Warren, November 9, 1965, and that Beatty reported seeing disc-shaped UFOs near the Empire State Building. I mean, how the fuck is Kevin Bacon not part of this yet? He is. I'll find him. So this poster for the Foo Fighters concert, which features a mantis entity clad in a space helmet, UFOs flitting about the sky, which refers to a very real blackout event, which involved UFO sightings over numerous power stations up and down the East Coast, also, also includes a telepathic message conveyed from the UFOs to Oscar-nominated actor Stuart Whitman in Manhattan. Friends, how far was it from Whitman's hotel to John Lennon's loft, where Lennon and May Pang sighted a UFO mere feet from his window, the one he called to, asking it to come back and take him? How far from Stuart Whitman's hotel to the Brooklyn Bridge, where Linda Cortile was floating out of her apartment before the gobsmacked faces of other New Yorkers? How far from Whitman's hotel to the street, where Anonymous Experiencer 1 observed a massive object slowly descend over him as he walked home alone in the snow from a party. Those scenes of chaos in the Foo Fighter poster, the Mantis Entity, front and center, sky peppered with UFOs, the incredible wave of actual encounters at power stations, Stuart Whitman's purported account, it all combines to make one wonder what the artist may have intuited about what or whom authored the blacked-out power grid and the illuminated power plants. Check the show notes for all kinds of doodads on this cosmic koan. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, one-on-one sessions with me, Stuart Davis. Click the link in the show notes to book. And The Experiencer Group It's where the love is at. Get there. Get some love. Link in the show notes. Later, Gators.